Good afternoon, and thank you so much for being with us. Coming up on the program today, we are going to talk more about rental housing construction and why Landlord BC is looking at a new program but has some suggestions on ways to improve that. Speaking of rental housing, we're also going to check in with the people behind the Real Estate Wire. If you've ever looked at purchasing real estate, you've probably gone to rew.ca more than once. But now it's been expanded to include rentals as well. So we're going to take a look at what is different there. Also going to talk about some new numbers when it comes to Canadians getting back on airlines, not as comfortable flying as perhaps uh, some other countries. We're going to check in with Claire Newell and see what she has to say about that. First, though, we are looking at something happening at Council today in Vancouver, and that is the motion from Mayor Kennedy Stewart with uh, the motion to send police a letter asking that they stop all street checks, a controversial practice that has been talked about in the news more so in the past couple of weeks. And about 70 groups, I think even more than 70 groups now, have actually signed a letter, signed the call, saying they would like to see police checks in Vancouver and across the province come to a halt. So let's check in with the BC Civil Liberties Association. Harsha Walia joins me on the line, Executive Director of the Association. Harsha, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. What is the main concern with street checks? Yeah, there's a few concerns. Uh, One is that street checks are actually illegal. They don't exist in the law. There's no statutory or common law power that actually authorizes street checks. So our concern is that there is no legal basis to conduct street checks. Um, And the second is that uh, all of the data shows over many decades uh, in Vancouver and across the province a very clear targeting of Indigenous and Black people who are uh, consistently overrepresented across municipal police departments in our province, uh, in Vancouver and elsewhere, uh, an over-targeting of Indigenous and Black people, vastly overrepresented uh, in street checks. So it is also a tool of racial targeting, uh, which is something that we're seeing increasingly come to the fore when it comes to policing, which is the systemic racism within policing. And can you describe what it actually, for somebody who has never seen a street check or been the subject of a street check, can you describe how it actually unfolds? Yeah, um, there's a number of different ways in which it unfolds, and primarily because it's a, a practice, a police practice that is not authorized by law, it's incredibly discretionary and arbitrary, so it can take a lot of different forms. One of the forms that it takes uh, is actually a wellness check. And as listeners may know, wellness checks have been in the news quite consistently because we've seen the tragic results of wellness checks in some instances where there have been police killings or police violence um, as a result of police responding to wellness checks. So one form of a wellness, one form of a street check is a wellness check where a police officer may be responding to someone in distress. Uh, or someone that they believe has overdosed or is in mental health distress, and then they're checking on that person, which can often escalate, as we've recently seen. Um, So that's one of the ways it uh, takes place. Another way that a street check takes place is um, if the police decide to stop people, where, again, this is where the arbitrary and racial profiling aspect plays in. Um, And uh, one case that was in the news a few years ago was the journalist Desmond Cole, a black journalist from Toronto who was actually in Vancouver uh, to speak about street checks in Toronto, was street checked in Stanley Park by the Vancouver Police Department, who was asking him, you know, what he was doing in in Stanley Park and asking him all these kind of arbitrary questions. Um, The VPD street check review 
itself gives a number of examples um, of people who are street checked, including people who are walking in the rain, who were stopped and asked why they were walking in the rain, because somehow that seemed unusual. Um, People who are walking their dogs, someone who was walking a dog on a church lawn, people who were standing on a street corner were street checked and asked, you know, why are you standing around here? And in one instance, a, quote, clean couple in a poor hotel uh, was a cause for suspicion. So it, it takes a lot of different forms, and those are just some examples of the, the real arbitrariness of them. Um, one of the 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 um, cases that's used, I've seen officers in, and to defend it's a type of street check, is during an investigation, and they talk about uh, the Picton case, and that the investigation in the Picton case, when women were disappearing from the downtown east side, a main part of that investigation was handing out cards, checking in with people. Have you seen this person? When was the last time you saw this person? Is there a way like that, or can it be part of an investigative tool that is actually a benefit? That's a great question. Um, and two things are important to note here. One is that, of course, during the Picton trial, as you know, both the provincial inquiry and the national inquiry have found, the police were actually were completely negligent in, in policing Robert Picton um, and the farm. And so, you know, I actually spent two decades working in the downtown east side during that time. Um, and there was an absence of investigation into what happened on the farm. Um, secondly, if there ever is someone who is missing, for example, there's a completely separate policing unit that handles missing persons, which is a missing persons unit. That is almost almost exclusively um, not the, the jurisdiction, say, in the downtown east side of the beat officer team. Um, so it's simply not the case that those are the same kind of investigative powers as street checks. Um, and the other important thing to note is street checks, by their very definition, are the kinds of police interactions that fall outside of investigative powers. So if there is an undergoing investigation, um, that does not include street checks. And that is, you know, an actual policing investigation where there is questioning, uh, where there might be uh, a detention, where there might be an arrest. Street check by their very definition, including the VPDs, is that it is a quote-unquote voluntary interaction um, precisely because there is no basis, a legal basis, to be conducting a street check. What about a scenario where there's just been an armed robbery Maybe the police have been given a description of the perpetrator and they're now fanning out in the neighborhood looking for people that might fit that description. Yeah, and again, that's one of those things where there's actually been a bit of a blurring and I think deliberate misleading of conflating street checks with, again, investigative powers, right? So um, investigative powers already are enshrined uh, in the law, which isn't to say they are perfect. They're also rife uh, with problems such as uh, you know, bias, uh, racial bias, where someone, we've seen, we've heard many instances across the country where, where that may emerge. But in this instance, it is important to note that street checks are distinctly those powers that fall outside of investigative and policing powers. So, so these are random and arbitrary and outside of the law by their very nature. How confident are you? Uh, and again, this is going, uh, Kennedy Stewart, the mayor's motion is being discussed at council today, writing a letter to try and get an end to these. How confident are you that that could happen? Well, this is certainly just the only step. The uh, actual body that has the jurisdiction to do so within Vancouver is the Vancouver Police Board, and then provincially it would be the Director of Police Services. So this is an important first step because it, it is important for Vancouver City Council to state its political commitment to ending the arbitrary nature of street checks. They're, they're fundamentally harmful and illegal, uh, but it won't actually end street checks. And so the next step is, of course, the police board and the province 
Um, and we hope that this will actually this will be ended. Uh, in Halifax, street checks have been banned, and there are many other jurisdictions where there are calls to, to ban street checks or carding, as they're called, for example, in Ontario. And so we hope that, especially given the political momentum and the fact that our political leaders have committed to ending racism in policing, that this is one of those concrete actions that they can take. All right, we'll leave it there. Harsha, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. Continuing the conversation now, we were just chatting with Harsha Walia with the BC Civil Liberties Association, one of many groups joining the call for an end to police street checks. So let's bring in Lama Mugabo, board director at Hogan's Alley Society. Lama, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for inviting me. What are your thoughts on this movement by the mayor? Kennedy Stewart's motion in, a, in an attempt to get an end to street checks is going to council today. What are your thoughts on that? I think it's a right step. It's a step in the right direction. Uh, we definitely welcome uh, the motion, and um, I'm definitely going to speak in favor of the motion to ban street checks once and for all in Vancouver. Can you share a bit of, of what it's like? And Harsha was was able to describe what they look like or, or how they unfold in some scenarios. But I think for people, if you've never been the subject of a street check or seen a street check, it can be difficult to understand exactly what we're talking about. How would you describe or how would you say a street check unfolds? Well, basically, it's a random uh, stop by the police. Uh, we feel it's racially uh, profiling people because they target black, indigenous, and poor people. So you're uh, going about your business, a police stops you, and they start asking you questions. At that moment, you are psychologically detained. The man or woman is wearing a badge, they have a gun, they have a uniform, you know they represent the state. And even though they say it's uh, voluntary, you can't walk away uh, unless they tell you to go because you're fearful that if you do something like that, it will escalate. So you're detained there and they ask you stupid questions, waste your time, and uh, then they let you go. But it's embarrassing for you, when passersby look at you, uh, and it just, it's wrong. The worst thing about it is that it's illegal. It's an unlawful practice that goes against the charter of freedoms and rights. So it has to go. Do you think that sometimes, do the lines get blurred between a street check like you described, a random a scenario where an officer comes up and, and like you said, you're detained, you're not going to walk away, you don't know how what's going to happen. Is, is there a difference between that and, say, an investigative tool where officers are actively, say, investigating a crime or they've been given a description of somebody and they're actively looking for someone? I mean, that's definitely... Um, uh, so it's understandable if there's been a crime and uh, they're doing investigation. Uh, uh, you know, I'll take that. But very often, it's just really racially profiling people who live in low-income communities. Or if you happen to be in a wealthy neighborhood and they look at you, they assume that you're not, you don't belong there, they will stop you. 
And you're right. You're, you're right. To, and I hadn't even thought of that aspect of it, that if, that if people going by, the minute you see somebody stopped by police, being questioned by police, nobody go, jumps to the conclusion, oh, I, don't, I guess that person didn't do anything wrong. Your immediate conclusion that you draw is that person must have broken, broken the law or that person must have been doing something suspicious. Absolutely. And it's very easy to target people who look poor or indigenous or black people. Um, it's, it's ridiculous. I, I remember a reporter from Toronto who was here to speak at a, as a keynote speaker uh, for CCPA. And uh, after he arrived here within 24 hours, he decided to go for a walk at Sunny Park. Sure enough, he's walking uh, on a sidewalk, uh, smoking a cigarette, and the police system makes a U-turn and starts asking him questions. But unfortunately, I think this officer uh, picked the wrong guy because this reporter was an award-winning reporter in Toronto who has done a lot of work on carding. And so he challenged the officer. And when the officer said he was going to walk away and let him go, he refused, took his badge number, and went to... Uh, place a complaint at the police department. So, yeah, it, it's ongoing, and uh, the fact that they start show a disproportionate number of poor women, uh, indigenous, and black is really a red flag for us. Um, something needs to happen. It's interesting, too, when you mentioned that the case of Desmond Cole being stopped by police in Stanley Park, uh, the controversy at the time was, and he was very vocal about it, police came back and said, well, actually, we stopped him because he was smoking and you can't smoke in a public park. But I, I think the the question there, and I'm not sure that anybody has these statistics, would be, okay, do, do police stop everybody they see smoking in the park? Or there was there a particular reason why they stopped this person? Yeah, he's... Uh it fits the profile of a black man who is not supposed to be there. You see, for us, though, I mean, one of the reasons we find this starts very troubling and one of the reasons we want to push this to the finish line is that we have been speaking loud and clear for, for years. And uh, finally, we, we've seen uh, this uh, practice uh, ban in Halifax, and we want to push for BC municipalities to answer check, and hopefully it will be across Canada, we have to start uh, thinking about how best to com- police our communities. Uh, I think the police is given way too much power and way too much money. So when we talk about defunding the police, we're actually looking at how can we police the community without relying heavily on the police. There are first responders, if you have a mental health incident, you call the police. If you have a domestic incident, you call the police. And clearly, police can't do all these things. So when we say defund the police, we're not saying, um, you know, take the money and, 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 and uh, yeah, we're actually saying take the money, invest it in social services, invest it in uh, uh, work that that's fighting poverty in the trenches. And that's how we reduce crime, by providing health care, housing, education, and all these services 
that that are, uh, have been starved for resources at the expense of the police. All right, Lama, we'll have to leave it there for today. We're right out of time, but I appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being with us on this Tuesday afternoon. Well, a new program is aimed at getting more rentals on the market, at least building more rentals. And it has to do with the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation backing the deal, spurring affordable rental construction by offering up loans. Is this the best way to do it, though, or could there be ways to improve this type of model? Well, let's bring in David Hutniak, CEO at Landlord BC. David, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks, Joe. Nice to see you again. Uh, can you explain the program, if you can, and how the the housing corporation is, is giving these loans or doing these loans to bring on more construction of affordable rentals? Yeah, I mean, the, the program is, has been in place for uh, a while now, um, and I think over, over a year at least. And uh, basically, it, uh, the intention of it is to provide... Uh, uh, low-cost financing, and uh, but there are some um, sort of requirements, and one is affordability. Uh, there's an affordability com- component to it. There's an accessibility component to it, and also the looking at uh, energy efficiency. So they have, you know, a few other objectives uh, wrapped around this financing. But at the at the end of the day, the the terms, the actual financial terms, are very attractive. And so, so we are seeing one or construction underway in one particular development. Do you think this will lead to to a, a substantial amount of rental housing that is deemed affordable? Well, it uh, it has. This program has been successful uh, at this uh, to this juncture. To be very candid with you, I mean it's been instrumental in in uh, new purpose built rental getting built, and and yes, it has uh, helped. Uh, uh, to to have uh, you know a significant portion of that new rental that's done through this financing uh, you know uh, come up more affordable, so it, it's it's achieving its objectives from that perspective. Uh, we were just basically uh, sort of uh, contacted recently about you know is the program working and can it be improved? And it was uh, really just an interesting opportunity for us uh, to to address that. And as we started thinking through it, it was. Yeah, you know, it works. It's there's a lot of really good parts about it. We'd like to see something permanent. Uh, you know, and, and in fact, uh, you know, a program like this really it, there's just there's no uh, ongoing subsidies uh, uh, from any level of government to to deliver this below market rental. But there are a few areas where it could be tweaked, and uh, so uh, you know, we'd love to love to see that. But uh, we're we're not uh, you know critical here of what CMHC has put forward. Uh, we we just think there's a room uh, some room for improvement. And where do you think we could see that improvement or that tweak? Yeah, I mean, one of the key areas is, uh, you know, when the financing is, is uh, basically uh, finalized. And, and you know, you followed the building of rental housing long enough to know that, you know, it's an arduous uh, uh, approval and permitting process through uh, local municipalities and, you know, an area where we would love to see more robust uh, uh, timelines, um, but the fact of the matter is that the financing is not, you know, not released until uh, basically when you're ready for construction. And in, in many um, jurisdictions, uh, when uh, you're w- wanting to build rental, the municipality wishes to see some affordability built into the the projects as well. And so, you know, uh, to factor in that additional uh, affordability and not knowing, you know, whether or not you have your uh, this preferred financing, etc., puts a uh, 
a lot of uh, risk on, on the rental developer, and it's something that, in our view, could be easily removed. And is it also, how does it work when we're talking about affordable rentals in that the rents are, are below market value, that some of the units have to have rents that are below, uh, kind of based on the on the income of people that are renting, which is great yeah. for people looking for affordable rental, but landlords aren't really in the, I mean, landlords are in this to make a profit. So how do landlords still make a profit? Well, I mean, here's the reality. The, the, uh, it is. Uh, it, it's. It's hard to make the numbers work on purpose-built rental at the best of times, and even with this program, uh, with the affordability requirements and some of the other prescriptive measures, uh, this is. Um, you know, you're looking at a developer, a rental developer, who really is uh, in the long game here. They're basically they're developing and retaining those properties as part of a portfolio. So they're taking a really long time horizon. Uh, because, uh, you know, the numbers, uh, when you work through the pro forma, they're really uh, in, in the context of, uh, you know, uh, for-profit uh, uh, construction here. There is not a lot of profit in these, in these projects. But, again, these are long-term investments, and those are the type of, uh, types of rental developers that are looking at these. So, so it's, it's, they understand what the conditions are to access this money, uh, and then it's just a question, like I said, of making making the numbers work. And really, I think, uh, you know, what we're suggesting is there are a couple of tweaks that could, you know, increase the confidence, uh, take out some additional risk for for uh, for these rental developers, because we want to encourage them to build more. It's not for every rental developer, but for those who are really in it for the long game. This is a really great program. All right, uh, David, just before I let you go, I wanted to, to ask you as well, uh, given the pandemic and where we are now into July, how are things going in your mind as far as uh, people paying their rent, being able to pay their rent, the freeze on evictions, that kind of thing? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, April, May and June, um, you know, we, we obviously saw rent not paid or, or partial payments. Uh, certainly it was, you know, the federal and provincial monies were very helpful and in that uh, uh, April, May, and June were not as bad as I think uh, many of us anticipated uh, in, the, in the industry. Um, and uh, the rent supplement program, as you're aware, uh, would be aware, has been extended through the end of August. So, so in many respects, you know, renters and I think landlords sort of weathered out these last three and a half months uh, uh, a little better than we would have expected. But uh, and then you know, the one positive move that did occur. I mean, uh, we we asked and, and we're pursuing uh, our sector being uh, part of the you know uh, uh, restart uh, program here, and so that did happen. Uh, although you know, we're still sort of waiting for the next piece of this, which is to actually remove the evictions uh, on the uh, rent owing or uh, non-payment of rent during that COVID period. And so that's. Uh, something that the government is working on uh, here, and, and we've had some input in terms of a repayment, uh, mandated repayment process, et cetera. So, so in, in many respects, uh, you know, you know we're, we see some light at the end of the tunnel in terms of the COVID-19 period. Uh, you know, longer term, I mean, certainly there's a lot of uncertainty for our sector. You know, uh, post-secondary students are not going to be here. Immigration is closed. Uh, you know, I think vacancy rates are going up, uh, budging up, and rents are, you know, uh, being tempered. So, you know, once uh, once we, uh, you know, we'll hopefully have some better sense for where the, you know, sort of the rental housing ecosystem is going to land over the next six, eight, to uh, twelve months. But definitely, it's a, it, we're not in the same world that we were uh, 
pre-COVID, um, you know, we were zero vacancies. Uh, vacancies are nudging up, uh, but I, I think, you know, our housing is so critically important. We're trying to look for ways to encourage developers to continue to build this housing. And, you know, you got to take a long-term, uh, well, if you're in our industry, you always take a long-term horizon. And so that's what we're, we're trying to do here and focus on the long-term. And, and we think that, uh, you know, uh, th- things will work out with over time. All right. Uh, we will leave it there. David, always good to chat with you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. Bye-bye. Well, a new poll that was done by Leger and the Association for Canadian Studies says a majority of Canadians are not overly comfortable getting back on an airplane, saying 72% of those who responded in this poll uh, say they're not comfortable even with uh, the wearing of a mask, not comfortable with the in-flight physical distancing if there aren't really physical distancing requirements. Well, let's bring on Claire Newell, the president of Travel Best Bets to talk a little bit more about this. Clara, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, my pleasure, Jill. Yeah, this has got a lot of people very, very nervous, and it's going to take the airlines a lot to really explain what they're actually doing because I don't know that many people have actually dug deep into what the airlines are actually doing to make it safe for travelers. And I do know, I get it, I get that there are a lot of people out there, Jill, that will actually wait until there's a vaccine before they ever get on board an aircraft again. Um, there'll be people who will go no matter what. And I know people who've actually gone on board flights back and forth, say, to Toronto or to visit friends and family in other places within Canada, um, that it went seamlessly. But there, you know, there are some things that the airlines are doing to make it safe because the reality is, and I think you and I've talked about this, Jill, you can't be six feet apart on a plane even if the middle seat is blocked. So you could stick your arm through the back and touch the people who were sitting behind you or in front of you. If you're sitting on an aisle and someone's at the window, even if the middle seat is blocked off, you can touch them. Um, What's really important is to find out what the airlines are doing, and virtually all of them are working, well, they are working with IATA, which is the International Air Transport Association, and with the UN's, International Civil Aviation Organization, as well as many, many medical um, organizations like the CDC, to, and looking at the data and the evidence and figuring out what exactly are the important things moving forward. And the HEPA filters, the air filters that recirculate the air every two to four minutes, depending on which aircraft you're on board, um, they're on every commercial airline out there. And it HEPA stands for High Efficiency Particulate Air Filters, and they're the same ones that are used in operating rooms. They extract virtually all microbes and viruses from the cabin air. The other thing is that wearing of the mask on board the plane. And I do know that they're doing physical distancing, you know, when you're all, all the way through the airport, even lining up and getting on board the aircraft is, is a lot different. They are socially distancing, but they're boarding the back of the plane first in groups of 10, so you're not walking by people. Mm-hmm. Um, but once you are seated, the other thing is the cleaning of the plane. And I was lucky enough to be, uh, I was actually on with Charles Adler and we had a flight attendant phone in and they, she explained just how they're sterilizing the planes. Um, they are using stronger dis- disinfectants. Every surface is cleaned between, um, but it's also our responsibility uh, to take care of ourselves and to take the disinfecting wi- wipes, hand sanitizer, 
wear those masks and if you choose to um, use gloves and practicing um, the washing of our hands, it doesn't, it, it's really every surface that you touch that you, you have to think about even pulling yourself up from the, a seat, you know, using another surface, using the air vents and touching them. If you're using the restroom, the handles and the surfaces in there, you just have to have that hand sanitizer with you all the time. There's no, no wonder they, they increase the size that you're allowed to take on board over and above all the other little bottles that fit into the Ziploc bags. Um, to 355 milliliters, which is important for anyone who does have to fly or really wants to visit friends and family who who are, are in Canada and, and they want to, want to see. Yeah, it's kind of like the advice that you've been giving all along as far as just keeping yourself healthy when on a plane. But I, I get that people are more concerned now about this. Yes. So, so do you think that the measures are enough then when the airlines say they talk about the HEPA filters, they talk about the, the back of the chair being that physical barrier between people, that the requirement of wearing masks, do you think it is enough that, that people will, I know what you said, and, and there are people that will wait for the vaccine, but people will mm-hmm. want to get back on planes. They will. Um, I think combined with the pre-boarding temperature checks, the use of masks, um, the scaling back of in-flight service from food being completely in pre-packaged um, containers or um, like wrap, no pillows, no blankets. They're reducing the touch services. The flight attendants are in full PPE. Um, do I think it's enough? For me personally, yes. But I do know people who will not... Um, not choose to do it. And I, I completely understand that. Um, if it were me, this is the time that I would be using my extra points or paying a little bit more if possible to go in premium economy or say business just for the extra space between if I had that ability. If not, I would choose to sit and normally, you know me, I'm, I am a germaphobe on board a plane, but I'm also um, an aisle sitter. And I would choose to sit at the window. I'd probably f- if I was choosing to sleep, face the window. And my personal choice will not just be to wear a mask, but I'm going to use a face shield. It doesn't matter if I look a little strange. I don't mind at all. I look that way anyway when I get on board. Previous to COVID, I was the gal who was wiping everything down and uh, and doing that and you know covering my seat. So um, moving forward, if I'm the one wearing the shield, that's okay. But I, I don't want to stop traveling but I do want to know exactly what the airlines are doing. So I have dug in. Um, I have spoken to flight attendants. I have looked at the websites, but I do encourage anybody who has to or really wants to visit friends and family, if they've got elderly family that they want to see, please spend some time um, and look on board. But if for, uh, wear, wear the masks, and if you have a sore throat or temperature, do not travel. That's just it. And I do know that there are some of the airlines that are um, allowing people. So Air Canada, WestJet, American Airlines, United, um, Delta is the only holdout that is blocking middle seats. But the airlines that aren't, many of them will actually send you a text messages days before the flight and let you know if it's getting close to capacity and giving you the option to actually change your flights. Hmm. So look into that policy as well. If you don't, you know, you know you want to be on board a flight, you want to pay for an aisle or a window. Um, and you want to change it if change the flight if someone does book a middle seat near you, there are airlines that are offering you that option. All right, it's a good to, good to think about because you're right. There are some people that are going to want to or going to have to fly and get on airplanes maybe sooner than they want to. Uh, Claire, thank yes. you so much. Always good to check oh, in. Oh, my with pleasure, you. Jill. Thank you.